Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law issues of search and seizure, use of force, uh, search warrants, all kinds of things that you might need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia nowadays. And, you know, what a summer it's been. It's 2020. Um, thank everybody for your service and for your perseverance. It's a very difficult time to be a law enforcement officer. But we have never done a great job of providing legal training and resources for you to do a better job. There are so many of you who want to do better, who want to learn, who want to expand your mind, expand your knowledge, and uh, find ways to better strengthen and serve your community. So hopefully this podcast has been helpful to you. Um, Today we're going to talk about dealing with armed citizens in traffic stops. Uh, including people who may have concealed carry permits or are lawfully carrying or possessing firearms. And last episode, we talked about just one case. We talked about U.S. versus Curry, which dealt with an active shooter situation. It was a challenging Fourth Amendment case, and it was an en banc case from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about another en banc Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals case today, which is U.S. versus Robinson. And it comes out very differently. It's the full court sitting together just like last week, um, but it's dealing with a very different issue, well, slightly different issue. Um, but the basic question is this, is, you know, you're conducting a traffic stop and you have somebody in a car and they have a gun. Now, the traffic stop might be for something totally unrelated. It might be for, you know, DUI or it might be for an equipment violation or it might be for petty larceny or whatever. Um, what can you do with respect to the person in the car who has a firearm? Let's say it's a passenger. You're stopping the driver for petty larceny and the, the passenger has a gun. It might seem like the question is obvious, but in fact, the courts have been struggling with it recently, and there's some interesting questions in this area. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start out in this conversation talking about uh, sort of a a relatively straightforward situation, or what I thought might be a straightforward situation, which is uh, Williams versus Commonwealth, right? Now, this is a case that you're going to deal with all the time. This is a brand new case that came out from the Court of Appeals in January of this year, January 14th. This is a case involving a guy who's got who's driving and he commits a traffic violation. An officer stops him and the officer asks him, do you have any guns in the vehicle? The defendant says, which is a perfectly appropriate question, right? Do you have any weapons in this vehicle? The defendant says, yeah, I do. And the officer says, great, where is it? And he's like, well, you know, he's very evasive. He won't tell him where it is. At least four times the officer says, dude, just tell me where the gun is. And the uh, driver of the car just says, Look, it's concealed. It's concealed in the vehicle. And there's a dog in the car as well. The officer suspects the individual might be intoxicated. So he asks the guy to get out of the car, away from the dog, and so he can observe the driver's motor skills. Um, Initially, the guy, the driver, is kind of hinky and doesn't want to get out of the car, but eventually he does agree. And as he's getting out of the car... His jacket, because uh, his jacket is, is open, and as he's getting out of the car, the officer can see inside the jacket, and he can see the butt of a large revolver inside the jacket. So the officer seizes the gun. Now, when he takes the gun, he since can see the serial number on the gun, so he runs the serial number on the gun, and the serial number comes back stolen. So the defendant moves to suppress the evidence. Now, let's start with this. There's two questions here. One is, can the officer seize the gun? And number two is, if he's got the gun lawful in his possession, can he run the serial number on the gun? 
Now, I can you know assure you, as you might imagine in this case, um, that the court found that the seizure of the gun, taking the gun from the defendant, was lawful. The question that really you know challenged the court here was, could you run the serial number? But I want to talk about the conversation about seizing the gun, right? Because number one is, uh, the guy hasn't committed any offense with the gun. You know he's armed, but there's nothing here to tell me that he's committed an offense involving danger, right? He stopped for an equipment violation. He's evasive about the location of the gun, but he's not legally required to tell you that he's got a gun at all or where the gun is. But nevertheless, in this case, the court said, you know, he can see the, the officer can see the gun protruding in plain view. And under the circumstances, under the totality of the circumstances, it was appropriate for the officer to believe that his safety or the safety of somebody else was in danger, and therefore it was appropriate for the officer to seize the gun. Now, the court also said, uh, since he had the gun lawfully in his possession, it was lawful for the officer to read the serial number since it was basically in plain view, and the uh, suspect in this case had no expectation of privacy in the serial number, so it was appropriate to run the serial number of the vehicle uh, and um, run the serial number of the, of the gun and learn that the gun was stolen. So that was appropriate as well. What's interesting about this case, uh, Williams versus, Williams, and again, it's called uh, Williams versus Commonwealth, is that the court references explicitly a decision by the Fourth Circuit that we're going to get to in a minute called Robinson. And in this case, the Virginia Court of Appeals sort of said, you know, we know that this Robinson case is out there, and we're not going to talk about it right now. We're not going to deal with the question of Robinson because it's not really at stake in this case. It's pretty clear that the defendant in this case is being evasive about the location of the gun. There's reason for the officer to think that there's something uh, suspicious going on, and so it's appropriate in this case for the officer to seize the gun. But the bigger question that's posed in Robinson, the bigger question the court does not deal with in this case is, what if there was no reason whatsoever to think that there was a danger to the officer's safety other than the existence of a gun? Could the officer in this case seize the gun anyway? In other words, he stopped the defendant for equipment violation, he finds out the defendant has a gun, and just on that basis alone, can he seize the gun from the defendant? That's the question that Robinson deals with. And in this case, the Virginia Court of Appeals says, you know, that's an interesting question. We're not going to deal with it in this case. Because you see, the, the challenge that the court is dealing with here is a challenge that uh, comes up in Commonwealth versus Johnson, which is an April 28th case of this from this year, April 20th of 2020. And it's a case out of Richmond where officers are patrolling an area where there's been a lot of trespassing complaints, a lot of, you know, crime in the area. They can see an individual walking through the area, and they ask to speak to him. They say, hey, man, can I talk to you? And he turns and walks away. The officer said, no, no, hey, man, turn around. Let me talk to you. And they can see that he's got an L-shaped bulge in his waistband. So they go over, and they lift up his shirt, and in his waistband, he's got a gun. They seize the gun. They detain him, and they find out that he's a convicted felon. They go to trial on possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, but the trial court suppresses the evidence. The trial court says that the defendant was in, unlawfully seized, uh, that there was insufficient reasonable suspicion to stop him. There was no crime, right? Um, there's an argument about whether or not they had reasonable suspicion that he was trespassing, but the trial court says they, that they didn't, so they suppress the evidence. And then the trial court says if you don't have reasonable suspicion of a crime, you can't seize him and seize his firearm. The Commonwealth appeals... And the Commonwealth appeals on the issue of whether the officers had reasonable suspicion 
to suppress the uh, to to um, to to seize the firearm. And in the court's view, when the case is appealed to the court of appeals, the court finds the officer had nothing more than a belief, however reasonable, that the defendant was carrying a concealed firearm without any indication as to whether the the defendant was doing so in an illegal way. Right? There's no indication of criminality. He's not acting nervously. He's not making any furtive movements. Um, they hadn't put on a lot of evidence about whether it was a crime, high crime area. So it's different than the case we just talked about, which is Williams, right? So Williams is trying to hide the gun. He's being evasive. He's being nervous. And he's lawfully detained. Here, all we have is suspicion the defendant was armed. And so there was no reasonable decision or probable cause to believe that there was contraband or evidence of a crime to be uncovered by the search of a defendant's person. So here, in this case, the court writes that an individual's choice to exercise his fundamental right to bear arms cannot, standing alone, serve as a basis for reasonable suspicion or probable cause that in doing so he's committing a crime. Thus, we do not presume that an individual carrying a concealed firearm must be in violation of law doing so. So the court says officers may not seize and search an individual based solely on the presence of what appears to be a concealed firearm without establishing first that it's concealed in violation of the law. Accordingly, the mere presence of a bulge that is consistent with the concealed carry of a firearm without more does not create probable cause that the crime is being committed. And this is very similar to a ruling that the Court of Appeals handed down in the Simpson case back in January of 2017. This was a case out of Stafford where the defendant uh, was a passenger in a vehicle that was stopped for an equipment violation. The, the officers get his ID, they learn he's wanted, and they arrest him. And while standing outside the vehicle, they've already taken him into custody, they've already arrested him, they're standing outside the vehicle, they can look inside the vehicle, and they see in the center console of a car, of the car, a firearm. They're able to see it uh, with the assistance of a flashlight. It's very hard to see, but they can see it with the assistance of a flashlight. So they seize the gun. Ultimately, uh, they figure out the defendant is a felon, and they charge him with possession of a firearm by convicted felon. The trial court suppresses the evidence, just like in the previous case, and the Commonwealth appeals. Now, Simpson is a really confusing case, and I don't like talking about it because it is kind of hard to figure out how you'd be in the same situation in the future as they were in Simpson. Because in Simpson, they charged the defendant with possession of a concealed weapon, and they contended that the, the gun was concealed, it was hidden from a common observation. In other words, it wasn't in plain view. So here, they were kind of boxed in because they couldn't argue that the gun was in plain view. Um, so they had to argue that the gun was hidden away, was concealed, but nevertheless, they were lawfully allowed to search for it, uh, seize it, and take it out of the vehicle, even though it was outside the reach of anybody uh, who was involved in the case because they were all outside the vehicle as well, and the defendant was being detained and taken into custody and taken away. So the court found in this case, again, the court found it was appropriate to suppress the evidence and found that the mere existence of a weapon without more does not automatically equate to probable cause to seize it pursuant to the Fourth Amendment. And here again, the Commonwealth had argued that the gun was concealed, so it couldn't be seized as plain view. The court 
uh, wrote that quote here, I'm quoting the court here, a bare assertion of officer safety without concomitant probable cause that a crime has been committed and that the weapon seized is contraband, evidence of the fruit of a crime, none of which obtained in this case, is insufficient to support a constitutional seizure. And again, you might say, well, he was a felon. The officers in this case didn't know that he was a felon until long after the case was over, long after they had transported the defendant away. Um, and in fact, next week, we're going to talk about the issue of, you know, well, he was a felon, so doesn't that matter? Um, there's a really interesting case called MacArthur versus Commonwealth, which was decided just last week. And we're going to talk about that case next week about, you know, knowledge, officers' knowledge and what's in the computer system and so on. The court really struggles with this and I think comes to an interesting decision in MacArthur. But that's next week. Um, for this week, then, you have this case, Simpson, which says that there's no probable cause to seize the gun. So here's where we are at this point before I talk about Robinson. What's clear is if you conduct a traffic stop and you, ha and you have some reason to be concerned for your safety about the driver or the passenger, that there's something going on, they're being nervous, evasive, furtive movements, it's a high crime area, you're alone at night, that kind of thing, and then you develop reasonable suspicion to believe that the suspect is armed, the court seems to be fine with you seizing that firearm, right? That's pretty clear. On the other hand, if you encounter somebody who's simply armed and you have no crime at all, they haven't committed a crime, you don't have reasonable suspicion of any crime, all you have is the bare fact that, well, this person is armed, they have a gun, it's concealed on their person. That is not enough to see somebody, right? Because the fundamental rule under Terry is if I'm going to detain somebody for a reasonable period of time in order to confirm my dispel my suspicion of criminal activity, I have to have reasonable articulable suspicion the person is committing some kind of crime. And then if I have the reasonable suspicion to detain them, sometimes in some of those stops, I might also have the authority to pat that person down. But I only get that authority if during the course of that detention, that's based on reasonable suspicion of crime, I also develop reasonable suspicion that the person is armed. So I can't get to the armed thing if I don't have an initial lawful detention. But we're talking here still about a standard that is reasonable suspicion. What if the question is probable cause? And Simpson seems to be talking entirely about probable cause to actually seize a gun and take it into your possession and custody um, and hold it away from somebody, not just for the duration of the stop, but for some further examination um, or under some other circumstances, right? And then Simpson is interesting because it's not a Terry pat down, right? Simpson is not patting down the driver. It's not patting down the car. The only way in Simpson that they're lawfully allowed to get into the car would be if they had probable cause because Mr. Simpson was already taken into custody. He was already taken away. And the court says just seeing a gun in a car is not probable cause to enter the car and, and, and enter the car and seize the gun, right? So we have a ba pretty basic rule. We got to have a crime first, some kind of crime, even if it's a traffic infraction, some kind of offense before we seize a firearm from somebody. And if we have no offense, then we don't get to seize the firearm. And that brings us to the question of Robin, the, the case of Robinson. Now, Robinson is a case from 2017. And uh, it's an en banc case. So just like Curry last week, we talked about Curry. Curry was an en banc case. And what that means is that the uh, when you go before the Fourth Circuit, there are you know 15 judges or 16 judges who hear your case. 
And uh, normally, in a normal appeal, they simply pick three of those judges sort of randomly to decide your case. So only three judges are ultimately going to decide each case gets appealed. Because in the Fourth Circuit, every single case gets appealed. All the cases get appealed. Anytime that you have a case go to trial, and even, and even guilty pleas will go uh, to appeal on sentencing issues. So there's just an unbelievable amount of appeals. But sometimes, if the full court decides that they're willing to rehear a case, that something is very controversial, a decision of three judges is very controversial, they will hear the entire case together. And that's what happens in Robinson. In Robinson, this is a West Virginia case, uh, police receive an anonymous tip that a man was carrying a concealed firearm on his person and was traveling in a vehicle. And this was in a high crime area. So officers stop, they find the vehicle, and the vehicle is being driven by this guy, and the vehicle commits a traffic violation, some kind of traffic infraction. So they stop the vehicle, and Mr. Robinson is the passenger in the car, not the driver. So the officers ask the defendant to step out of the vehicle. Now, the defendant matches the description of the person carrying the concealed firearm on his person. The officers ask him if he's got any weapons, and the defendant asks very startled and then refuses to answer. So they pat him down, they recover a firearm, and they discover that he was a felon. Now, the defendant moves to suppress the evidence, and he says, hey, there's no reason to pat me down. I'm just a passenger in a car that's committing a traffic violation. Maybe you think I have a gun on me, and maybe you have reasonable suspicion to think you have, I have a gun on me. But what gives you right, the right to pat me down? I haven't done anything wrong, and as far as you know, I could have a concealed carry permit. Now, the district court denies the motion to suppress, but a panel of the Court of Appeals uh, reverses, and they reverse his conviction for possession of a firearm by convicted felon, and they find that the evidence should have been suppressed. So now the case goes en banc before the full Fourth Circuit. In a 12-4 decision, the court, uh, 12 judges agree that the officers had the right to stop the vehicle based on the traffic violation, had the right to ask the defendant to exit the vehicle. We all know that, right? That's a clear rule. And that the tip was sufficient under Navarrete, right? Uh, it was sufficient to get the, based upon the fact that the officers had asked him about the, the firearm and he refused to answer and so on. So the officers had corroborated enough the evidence to give them reasonable suspicion to believe the defendant was armed, right? So they agreed that the stop is lawful. They agreed it's lawful to get him out of the car. They agree it's, uh, they, the officers had reasonable suspicion to believe that he was armed. And so here's the question. And here's what 12 judges agree upon. The 12 judges agree that it was lawful for the officers to pat him down and seize his firearm. So again, here the court is examining this question, and they rule that an officer who makes a lawful traffic stop and who has reasonable suspicion that one of the automobile's occupants is armed may frisk that individual for the officer's protection and the safety of everyone on the scene. It doesn't matter whether the defendant in this case or the passenger in the car has a permit to carry a concealed firearm because the danger involved, the danger that gives you the right to conduct a protective frisk, arises from the combination of a forced police encounter and the presence of the weapon, not whether or not the weapon is being possessed illegally. Even if the weapon is being possessed legally, in the eyes of the court, it was illogical to argue that somehow, there, therefore, there was no uh, danger to the police officers. There was no risk. 
if you look back at Terry, and that's what the court did in this case was really interesting. They go back to the Terry decision. And, you know, if you're a law enforcement officer in Virginia, you should go back and read Terry versus Ohio. I mean, you you should never, I think, you know, they ought to assign it in, in the police academy for you to read. Although, really, would it be useful to you if you've never been an officer? Okay, maybe they should require you read it after being a police officer for a year. Because it's really good police work, right? But, you know, the facts of Terry are that the officer's out there and he watches these people walking back and forth in front of this jewelry store. There's been all these armed robberies of jewelry stores in the area. And he sees these three guys and they're walking around. And they keep looking in the window and they've got their hands in their pockets and it's a hot day. And they got these big jackets on and they're walking around to the corner and they're talking again. And they go back and they walk in front of the jewelry store again. I mean, they're casing this jewelry store. And so the officer walks over and all by himself, because back in the old days that you did, you didn't call for backup. There was no radio. I mean, it wasn't, you're by, you're by yourself. You had to do everything by yourself. Uh, so he, by himself, detains and uh, these three guys, finds their guns and arrests them. So here, the court says in Robinson, that there's two requirements for a Terry pat-down, right? Number one is you have to have conducted a lawful stop. And that includes a traffic stop. And number two, during this valid forced encounter, you reasonably suspect that the person is armed and therefore the person is dangerous, right? So let's go back, uh, apply that rule to the case we talked about so far, right? Williams, Williams, they stop the defendant uh, for a traffic violation in the middle of the night and the officer determines that the suspect is armed. And so, because you can see the guy getting out of the car and the guy's got... Uh, the butt of a revolver sticking out, and so the officer seizes the, the gun. The court agrees that's lawful. Then we look at Johnson, which is that April case. That's the case where they're walking through the area where it's a trespassing, uh, it's a high trespassing area. They see the guy, they're like, hey man, we don't talk to you. And he says, I don't want to talk to you. And he keeps walking. But he can, they can see he's got an L-shaped bulge. He's got a, it appears that he's got a gun in his waistband concealed. They walk over and they, ta- they seize the gun. Here again, the Robinson court would agree, well, you missed number one. You didn't have a lawful stop of him. You were stopping him because you thought he was armed, but you need to have some lawful reason to stop him to begin with. So here, the court says, Mr. Robinson was lawfully stopped. He was a passenger in a car that was stopped for a traffic violation, and the officers had reasonable suspicion to believe he was armed. Therefore, it was appropriate for them to pat him down and seize his firearm. And... So that's how Robinson comes out. And uh, Robinson is a pretty strong statement from the court. That's 12 of the 16 judges who were hearing this case uh, found that the uh, pat-down was lawful. Now, what that brings us to then is, oh, well, then I guess that's the answer for us in Virginia. And I wish it were the answer because it's a pretty clear answer and it's an answer you could follow pretty clearly. But now I have to tell you something a little bit strange about what that case means for law enforcement officers in Virginia. So this requires us to kind of talk about the court system. In Virginia, we have our lone local courts, right? We have general district courts, we have circuit courts, and then there's a court of appeals that sits over the court of the circuit court. And if you are convicted in a criminal case, you can appeal to the court of appeals. That's the purpose of the court of appeals. Basically, it was created, it exists for the purposes of hearing criminal case appeals and some domestic uh, relations cases as well. But, you know, a huge portion of what it hears is uh, criminal case appeals. Then you have the Virginia Supreme Court. They are the court that sits above the Court of Appeals. 
Very few cases are appealed from the Court of Appeals to the Virginia Supreme Court. They don't hear any criminal cases uh, directly from circuit court or, uh, or general district court or anything like that. They just hear a very small number of cases every year. Um, they only hand down very few cases every month. So most of the work uh, of creating law and articulating law and refining law in Virginia is done by the Court of Appeals of Virginia. Then you also have federal courts, like the local district courts and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, if you don't like how your general district court DUI case turned out, you can appeal to the circuit court. And if you don't like how your general your circuit court DUI appeal went, you can appeal that to the Court of Appeals. And if you don't like how that case went, you can appeal that case to the Virginia Supreme Court. Beyond there, Everyone in the United States does have the right to appeal their cases from their local state Supreme Courts to the U.S. Supreme Court. So that gives you a direct line up to the U.S. Supreme Court if you want to. But the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't take a lot of cases um, from, you know, like a DUI general district court case. They're not going to take a lot of those. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, they get their cases in the same way, but from the federal system. So if I don't like how my um, you know, magistrate court DUI that I got for being drunk in the, um, in, on a federal park when I can appeal that to the federal district court. And if the, I don't like how the federal district court ruled in that case, I can appeal that to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And if I don't like how the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on my case, I can appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court. So crimes that happen on federal territory take that route. They go through the federal courts. You can also commit a crime, a federal crime, like Mr. Robinson did, by being a felon in possession of a firearm, and that's a federal offense, just like a state offense. And they prosecuted Mr. Robinson in federal court, in district court. He didn't like how his case went, so he appealed to the Fourth Circuit. They gave him three judges. He didn't like how the three judges went, so he wanted to go to the full Fourth Circuit, and they agreed to hear it on bonk. So the full Fourth Circuit heard the case. The U.S. Supreme Court didn't take the Robinson case, so that's it. But that's a federal case, it's a federal ruling. And it doesn't control what the Virginia Courts of Appeal, Court of Appeals, Virginia Supreme Court, or even your local circuit court has to rule about search and seizures, right? I mean, the federal courts are supreme in a sense, but it's only the U.S. Supreme Court that can make binding rulings on Virginia courts about what the Fourth Amendment means. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, even sitting on bonk, even all 16 judges, can't make binding rulings about what the Fourth Amendment means, what's a good search or seizure, that a court in Virginia, a circuit court or the Court of Appeals or even the Virginia Supreme Court, has to follow. They could disagree with the Fourth Circuit and reach a different conclusion than the Fourth Circuit reached, and they would be perfectly justified in doing so. And the only way to get a definitive ruling on that issue then, when you have a conflict between what the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals thinks and what the Virginia courts think, is to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and get a final binding ruling that would bind us, both the Fourth Circuit and the Court of Appeals. And that's why 
when we have this January 2020 opinion in Williams, which is that case where the officer stops Mr. Williams for traffic violation. He's really hinky about where the gun is. He won't tell the officer. He's getting out of the car. The officer can see the butt of the gun in his jacket. The officer seizes the gun. It's even a question about whether the officer can lawfully seize that gun from Mr. Williams. The court agrees, sure, we have this Robinson case from 2017 that the whole Fourth Circuit decided, and the whole Fourth Circuit decided, hey, if you've got a traffic stop and you've got somebody who's armed, then you can pat that person down and seize that firearm, at least for the duration of the traffic stop. Um, uh, and that was lawful for the Fourth Circuit, but for Virginia, we still don't have a clear answer, an answer that's as clear as Robinson. So where does that leave you as a law enforcement officer in Virginia? It's pretty clear that you have to have, you can't just seize a gun from somebody if they haven't committed a crime. You can't just seize a gun from a car if there's no, if there's nobody in the car and there's no basis to think that the gun is evidence of a crime, a crime or contraband, or there's some kind of threat to public safety posed by the gun in the car. You can certainly seize a gun if you've got a situation where you've conducted a lawful traffic stop, even for a traffic violation, and you think that there is some basis to think that there's a, a threat to your safety. The person's um, engaging in nervous, evasive behavior, furtive movements, it's a high crime area, it's late at night, you're outnumbered, those kinds of factors will play into whether or not you think there's a threat to your safety. And the question that remains is, if I'm just doing a traffic stop and I've got somebody who I know I have reasonable suspicion to is armed, can I seize that gun from them, at least for the duration of the traffic stop? Robinson says yes. Uh, the Fourth Circuit seems to think yes. Under federal law in the Fourth Circuit, yes. The answer is yes. And in Virginia, the courts are still saying, well, we really haven't decided that issue yet. Not helpful information, but it's, I guess, you know, at least helpful to know what the law is right now in Virginia. And, um, you know, uh, I don't make the law and just tell you what it is, I guess. So there you go. That's what I got for today. Uh, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. I hope you like the podcast. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. If you've got another app you want me to use, let me know. But other than that, see you next time. Stay safe and don't get captured.